Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. Hey everyone, glad you're here to worship with us um, for our online gathering. My name is Mike. Let me tell you a story from the book of Judges. The book of Judges is full of really interesting stories. None of them end very well. In fact, the whole book does not end very well. It's a very pessimistic view of Israel during a certain period of time. Now, during one of those times, the Israelites, they were disobeying God, they were turning away from him, and they were suffering the consequences of that. And as a result, they cried out to God for his help, and God responded. God chose Gideon to rescue the Israelites from their trouble. Now, Gideon was a mess. I mean, the whole story was a bit of a mess, and it didn't end well. But there were some positive marks in there. Now, the Midianites and the Amalekites and some of the other people from the east, the enemies of Israel, came and crossed over the Jordan to cause some trouble for the people of God. Now, there were so many of them that it says that they were as thick as locusts, and their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Now, the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he summoned the people of Israel to prepare to fight, and he prayed to God. And as they were preparing for their battle, God said to Gideon, you have too many men. He said, anyone who is trembling with fear may leave. And 22,000 of the soldiers left and 10,000 remained. God said, there are still too many. Let me thin them out for you. So he said, take the 10,000 men to go get a drink of water and I'll separate them for you. Whoever drinks by lapping up the water from cupping his hand you can stay, he, that person can stay and fight. But whoever gets down on their knees to drink, that one has to go. Well, Gideon did that. All the soldiers went down to the water and 300, only 300, lapped the water out of their hands and the rest all had to go. Well, you may know what happened. Those 300 fighters defeated the massive army of all the people from the east who had come to fight against the Israelites. Now, I don't know how many of you were in the military, and frankly, it doesn't really matter. I'm guessing that you have enough sense to know, you have enough wisdom to know that when you're facing a big force, you want to be prepared with everything that you've got. In fact, you want to show enough force that you can actually intimidate your enemy so that you don't even have to fight them. But God's wisdom isn't like our wisdom. We have certain ideas about what a successful path forward will be like for us, the right next steps to take that will set us up well, that will show that we are strong and capable. And that's a lot of the way that we have to live our lives. But sometimes God reveals something that flips things on their ends a bit. And it doesn't make sense in our sense of wisdom. So it requires that we 
we reorient ourselves around trusting God, around having faith in him and trusting that he is going to be victorious. Now we're continuing our series right now, Resurrecting Church in the book of Ephesians. And we're seeing the vision that Ephesians lays out for what God's church is like. We can think of the book of Ephesians like a story. John talked about it in week one as a series in, in, um, in how it's like an apocalyptic narrative of God's victory over all the powers everywhere. And we are a part of that bigger story, which is all about Jesus. And when we become a part of that story, we find ourselves in Christ, which becomes our identity. There are all sorts of false identities that we can take on, but our true identity is found in Christ, where we have a hopeful calling and vast riches in God and resurrection power. We were dead in our sins, far away from God, associated with the evil forces of the cosmos, but now because of the richness of God's grace in Christ, we have been brought near to God and are alive in Christ. Not only that, but we've been united in peace to all other followers of Jesus, no matter their, their background, no matter part of the, we're all part of the same household, the same temple that is the place of God's presence, all the same spirit in us. But peace, it isn't easy because we live in a divided world and the devil wants division in the church. It's his main tactic against the church. But what unites us, the spirit of God through Jesus, is far greater than what divides us. Having laid all of that groundwork, Paul begins to pray in Ephesians chapter 3, and that's our passage for today. We're going to be going through the first 13 verses of the chapter, and Jessica Anders, who is our new pastoral resident of prayer, is going to be reading the passage for us today. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. To preach the to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose 
that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jessica. Now, this is a really interesting passage. Paul seems to be going in one direction in verse 1, and then he changes direction in verse 2 all the way through verse 13, and then he kind of seems to pick up where he left off down in verse 14 again. Have you ever talked to a four-year-old? This is my son, Caleb. He's four. He's a lot of fun to talk with. But sometimes if you're talking to him about something and a thought about Super Mario Bros enters his brain, he will instantly change the subject to Mario. I don't think Paul has that kind of problem. I think he's being intentional. This passage isn't just some random thought that enters his head and that he chases like a squirrel. I think it's actually, he's actually doing this to highlight what he's saying because it's so important. Honestly, there's more in this passage than we could possibly cover in this service or in this sermon right now. So if you wanted to spend a little bit more time on it, on your own, to look a little further into some of these things, here are some phrases or some features that I would recommend for you. What does the phrase, the administration of God's grace mean? What was not made known to the people of another generation? Because they should have known that Gentiles were being included in God's plan. What does it mean when Paul says we are heirs with and sharers in the promises of Israel? And we're going to touch on this one a little bit, but what does it mean to have access to God through faith in Christ? All of that stuff is really interesting, but the place where I want us to kind of hone in on today is going to be starting in, is going to start in verse 10. It says, "His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's wisdom isn't like our wisdom. It's a manifold wisdom. The word for manifold is polupoikalos. It means many-sided or many-varied, which is just a nice word picture for saying that it's complex. It's beyond us, even though it's revealed through us. It isn't simple. There are many facets to it. Let me just tell you that my wisdom is, would never be described as multifaceted. God's wisdom, how it's described in Ephesians, though, is multifaceted. He pre-plans things. He predestines things. He administrates the mystery of the gospel and of his grace. He has an eternal plan. But, and this is highlighted in this passage, God's wisdom is not only greater than ours, but it's just, it just doesn't fit well with what we might think wisdom would be. And it's demonstrated in two ways in this passage. One, it's demonstrated through Paul. 
And two, it's demonstrated through the church. In this passage, we have highlighted for us the victory of God in Christ, which is Paul's dominant theme throughout the book of Ephesians. And so he's already been talking about it in chapters one and two. He says that all things are being summed up, being brought together in Christ because of God's incomparable great power, which he demonstrated by raising Christ from the dead and placing him above every rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked. That's chapter one. And those who once were dead because they followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air are now seated in the heavenly realms with Christ, rescued and victorious with him above every other rule. That's chapter two. Now in chapter three, God is showing that victory over the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Verse 10, by the working of his power through Paul. So God's victory is pictured in this passage, but his servant, Paul, he isn't looking so victorious. Paul seems to go out of his way to make this known to everyone. He says that he's a prisoner. He's a servant or slave of this gospel. He's less than the least of all the saints, and he's suffering on behalf of the church. If God's wisdom were like my wisdom, the representative that he would choose to share the message of his victory would not be the least of all the saints prisoners suffering Paul. It would be, I don't know, Rambo or Michael Jordan. It would be someone with strength and position, power and ability. They'd have the most degrees and they would be really impressive. And then you would be impressed and you'd wanna be a part of whatever I was doing because you'd be so impressed. You'd see my success and my wisdom and that, that would be appealing to you. And, and, and it would bolster me all the time. In God's wisdom though, he doesn't wanna bolster me. He wants to bolster Jesus. He doesn't look for the bravest, strongest, fastest, bestest. Instead, he looks for weakness and humility. He looks to demonstrate his power and his wisdom through the weakness and inability of those who would trust in him. Why? Because it shows how great he is and it teaches us to trust in him, even though our circumstances may look bleak, to trust that he will be victorious, that he is the creator, the provider, the sustainer of our lives. This was actually his purpose in the story of Gideon. The Lord said to Gideon when his army was all gathered, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me, my own strength has saved me. And there are pretty other, plenty of other stories like this. Like think about David and Goliath. David, who is the shepherd of just a few sheep, who defeats Goliath, the massive Philistine. Because as David says to Goliath, 
you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, human wisdom, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh Almighty, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You're using human strength and wisdom and strategy. I'm going to trust in God. Or what about the story of Jericho? God instructs Joshua to defeat the city by marching around it while shouting and blowing trumpets. But the Lord says to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands and you can't dispute it because what you did looked really foolish. It was foolish. It was only successful because of me, because I had the defeat for you. Think about even Pentecost. Today, we're celebrating Pentecost. And you think about Acts 1 and 2, where the, the disciples first are trying to figure out what do they do? And they kind of elect a new apostle, Matthias. And, but is he really an apostle? And they're, and they're like quoting some weird scripture. And then Acts 2, the spirit of God comes down and empowers them. The wisdom of God shows them then what to do. God's wisdom is not like our wisdom. He uses weakness and humility for victory. And of course, that's what he did in Jesus. It was through his death, through his suffering, through his weakness and humility that he conquered every ruler and authority and power. That's what we see in Paul here. He's the least, he's the prisoner, he's suffering. But that is who God is using to proclaim his cosmic whole victory over everything. So Paul's a suffering prisoner, but he's also the one who has been entrusted with the revelation of the gospel. In line with what we've said about the book of Ephesians being um, having some features of apocalyptic literature, there's all, all this language in this passage about revelation that Paul has received. He's been given the administration of God's grace in verse two. It was a mystery made known to him by revelation, verse three. He, was, he has insight that was not made known to other generations, verses four and five. And grace was given to him to preach the mystery that was hidden in God, verses seven through nine. Paul is contrasting his circumstances as a prisoner with the weight of what has been entrusted to him by God to give confidence to his readers that this is the way God works. It's okay that I'm suffering. It's okay that I'm in prison. In fact, he says it's for their glory that he is suffering because that's actually part of God's plan. Because if I, Paul, wasn't suffering, if I was dominant in society right now, you wouldn't believe it was God working through me. You would just think I'm powerful myself. God revealed to Paul at another time that my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. This revelation that has been entrusted to Paul, he says, has been given to him in order to preach to the Gentiles 
and to make plain the administration of God's mystery, with the result that the manifold wisdom would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies through the church. This is the second way that we see God's wisdom radically different than our own in this passage. The first was through Paul himself, and the second is through the church. Now, if I wanted to reveal to somebody the most wonderful and complex things about me, I'd want to use something that is the most quintessential me, something that reveals and captures who I am and that represents me well, which is why it just it blows my mind that God is revealing his multifaceted wisdom through the universal church in all time and place, through the global church right now, and through us as a church at New Hope. The church is a display to every power in creation that God is victorious and that he is wise. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with church, but I don't think we display God's wisdom very well most of the time, which is okay because it actually doesn't depend on us because the display of wisdom isn't based on who we are and how we behave and that the rest of the world sees that we are wise. Just the opposite, in fact. It's that God would even include us that he would bring such a diverse group of people together, uniting them in peace with one spirit and uniting them with himself to show that he is the one who has done it. It is the victory of God through Christ, and it is, it is a reality even when we don't act like it, even we, when we don't represent it well. It is God showing his power through weakness. We don't contain the wisdom, but in our weakness, we display God's wisdom. One scholar says of this passage, unfortunately, at times, the church has assumed a triumphal posture based on a misapprehension that it possesses such power and wisdom in itself. Acknowledging the wisdom of God in and through the church should lead the church not to a posture of arrogance, but to one of humility. God's wisdom is not like our wisdom. He didn't choose us because we're great. He chose us in our weakness to give us the boundless riches of Christ. Meditate on that phrase for a while. He chose us to make us co-heirs, co-body members, and co-sharers in the promises of God. Now, just because God has done it doesn't mean that we don't change as a result of it. Paul writes just a short bit later in in Ephesians, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He frames his whole letter up like that. The first three chapters are, look at how incredible God is in Christ. He's completely victorious. He's given us every blessing. He's sealed us with the Holy Spirit. 
He's given us an incredible inheritance. He's freed us from the powers of evil. He's put us into his family called the church. And all of this is just a wonderful gift of his grace. That is the reality that exists. And our response to that is to live in alignment with that reality. That's discipleship. That's our formation into the image of Christ. That's sanctification, another term for it. The more we meditate on these truths, the more they'll, ref- they'll affect the way that we live, the way that we walk. And it's a growth. It's a process. It doesn't always feel like progress. We don't do it well often, but God's grace, mentioned so many times throughout Ephesians, <clears throat> is undergirding the entire time. Your identity remains in Christ through that process. But we still have to keep repenting and turning back to God and realigning our lives, our walk with that incredible reality of who we are in Christ. So just a few thoughts on how we realign with this passage specifically. I labeled them level 101 lesson, 201 lesson, 301 lesson, because I think They are progressively each a little more difficult, but we don't ever master any of them and we don't ever move on from any of them. We always have to keep revisiting them. So you ready? Level 101 lesson, approach God regularly. Paul says in this passage, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The NIV smooths the language a bit here, but there are three words in Greek that essentially mean access, boldness, and confidence. And it feels really repetitive when you're reading it in Greek. It's like, okay, I get it. There's complete access there to God the Father through the Son and the Spirit. And can you picture a person in your mind that you just wish you could talk to anytime? that you could glean anything you could from them, maybe their wisdom or their help in any particular circumstances? And what if that person just loved you so deeply as well? What a great feeling to have access to someone like that. And how much more for our loving Father who has removed every barrier, every barrier for you to come talk, to listen, to worship, to love and to be loved. You don't ever have to question if he's going to reject you. When you are in Christ, you can always turn to the Father, your source of life. Okay, level 201 lesson. Love and appreciate the church. This is a challenge. The church isn't perfect. We certainly aren't perfect as a church here. And frankly, I think the American church in particular has a lot of issues that it needs to work through. The church is messy. It's messy because we're all different. We think differently. We feel differently. We come from different backgrounds. We have different values. Like Herman said last week, we can also have the perspective that we move, uh, that we have more in common than not. 
But still, the church is messy. It's messy because there are different expressions of the church. Not every church is the same. We don't agree with every church. They don't agree with us. We're right, they're wrong. Just as God's wisdom is multifaceted, so also his church is multifaceted. Every weird quirk that we have is brought together in Christ in the church. There's so much good that has come and is coming from the church, but there's also so much bad that has come from it as well. And yet, God chose the church. Not because we're so great and have to figure it out. I mean, you won't find a church that has everything all figured out. But because he can show his greatness through our weakness. Paul will say later in Ephesians that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So also we need to love the church with all of its messiness. As John said in week one of the series, there's no plan B. The church is it. It's how God reveals himself to the world. So we can't be a part of what God is doing if we're also rejecting the means of doing it, of his, of his doing it through the church. And at the same time, as a church body, not just individually, but collectively as a church, we want together to live worthy of the calling that we've received. Okay, last one, lesson 301. This is a tougher one. Don't get caught up in power and strength. God works through weakness and humility. He did that in Jesus to conquer all rule and authority. He did that through Paul as the messenger of the gospel. And he does that through the church, showing his wisdom in its weakness. God's wisdom is not like our wisdom. We seek power and control and worldly success. We're tempted to elevate ourselves above, above others <clears throat> rather than taking the way of Jesus and humbling ourselves below others. Now, sometimes God gives us some level of authority or power or, or even worldly success, and we should handle those things responsibly and be thankful for them. But when that becomes our pursuit as individuals, as a church, or even as the church in society, we have lost our way. That is our wisdom, not God's wisdom. We'll see later in chapter 6 of Ephesians that our struggle, our battle is not with the things of this world. We're a part of something that is so much bigger than that. Instead, we are to be the body of Christ and to serve the world in humility and even in weakness. Tim Gombas, uh, who John will interview at the end of this series, says on this passage, God's victory in Christ absolutely rules out triumphalism among God's people. God's way of working is radically subversive, overthrowing perverted human reasoning. God triumphs through the death of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus wins by losing. We're not here to dominate. 
We're here to serve and to keep our eyes on the kingdom of God. And what this comes down to is trust versus fear. Do I fear what I have to lose? Or do I trust that I have boundless riches of Christ, far more than I could ever have in the kingdoms of the world? It's difficult to see that path forward sometimes, to live a life of God's wisdom instead of our own, because God's wisdom isn't like our own. God's wisdom looks like foolishness to the world. That's why we need Paul, uh, we need what Paul prays for in the book of Ephesians, that our eyes would be open to the reality of our lives in Christ so that we wouldn't be caught up in the wisdom of the world, but that we would praise God for his wisdom expressed in his grace through the church. Let's pray. Loving Father God, your wisdom is far beyond ours. Your grace is just incredible that you would, that you would choose us in Christ that you would bring us together in Christ and that you would show not only the world, but you would show the realms that we can't even see your wisdom through the church in its weakness. We trust God that you are victorious. Help us Lord to look to you, to trust you and to walk faithfully a life worthy of the calling that we have received in you, in Christ. We love you. Amen.